Hello, listeners. We are here today with Max Bergman, who is the director of the Europe program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of many guests that we brought on here from CSIS. Max also brings experience from the U.S. State Department, from the Center for American Progress, and he's widely published as an analyst on topics, of, especially of European defense. And Max, we are bringing you on as we approach the one-year anniversary, not of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but of the enormous escalation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which began in late February of 2022. So thanks so much, Max, for joining us on this very significant time in world history. No, great to be with you guys. So Max, we just had the State of the Union here in the United States, and I think it would be great to get your thoughts on really the first two years of Biden's presidency, and and more specifically, from your conversations, from your analysis, how do EU leaders rate President Biden's role in his first two years? And we've seen a lot of international incidents, so it's not like we are short of any topics to dig into. Well, I think... It's been an eventful two years, uh, particularly from a Europe and Russia perspective, and that's not simply because of uh, the the war in Ukraine. You know, the first year of the Biden administration, uh, there was definitely a sense of relief, to just be frank about it, uh, amongst Europeans. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a outwardly hostile relationship with uh, President Trump, uh, and Biden came announcing that America is back and and showing love to European allies. But that said, I think, and so the first six months was a bit of, you know, there's a charm offensive all around. Everyone was very happy the first six months of Biden's presidency. But by the second half of the year, there started to be some uh, real cracks, uh, I think, in in relations. Uh, in particular, the administration came in and uh, really focused on the Indo-Pacific, really focused on China. When Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, spoke to NATO for the first time in March of 2021, uh, he mentioned China more than 10 times and mentioned Russia just four times. Uh, there was a lot of concern, I think, amongst Eastern Europeans that the administration was looking to have a quote-unquote stable and predictable relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin, with Moscow. There's a big summit in Geneva with Putin in, in June of 2021. And then you had Afghanistan, where the U.S. sort of pulled out without actually telling the Europeans it was doing so. And that led to a lot of uh, broken trust. And then there was this big thing called the AUKUS affair, which uh, led to the French recalling their ambassador, uh, not for the first time in history. The the first time actually was 1793 uh, when um, uh, the French recalled their ambassador. That time it was to behead them. Uh, And so we actually gave the ambassador asylum. But this was a fight over uh, the French had a a submarine contract with the Australians. Uh, The Australians basically uh, uh, worked with us behind the scenes to have a new submarine uh, agreement, a, a nuclear submarine, and no one really told the French. And then we made this big announcement. What the French were doing was not, they recalled their ambassador, not just because they were upset about that submarine deal. It was obviously the trigger, but they felt Washington wasn't paying attention to Europe and wasn't paying attention to them. So that's why sort of there was the first year, I would say, excitement over Biden, but then the sense that actually the administration wasn't really that concerned about it. And then everything changed. Uh, Russia's forces started to really amass around Ukraine's borders. Uh, we then got the indication that war was coming. And then the, this whole last year has been the administration deeply engaged in Europe again. And the Europeans feel that attention. They feel uh, the strength of, of, the, uh, of the relationship, the strength of NATO. Uh, and so that has led to, I think, this, this feeling of good vibes. And the question is, will that kind of continue from a transatlantic perspective? 
uh, in the in the final two years of the administration. So, Max, right as we're having you on, we are getting to the end of this controversy that took up a lot of space in the news in the U.S.-European relationship, which had to do with provision of tanks to Ukraine. The American leadership and the German leadership came under a lot of scrutiny over this whole episode. And the Germans claimed that their initial reluctance to provide the tanks to Ukraine was because they were hoping to push the United States to do the same. And I'm wondering if you can evaluate the veracity of that characterization, uh, both on the U.S. side and on the German side. Well, I, frankly, I'm not totally sure what to make of that claim. I think that is, the I think, sort of a post facto uh, justification. I think sometimes that we in the United States have a real difficulty understanding that other democratic countries also have politics. And I think this was a case where Chancellor Schultz is the leader of the SPD, the, the socialist uh, party in, in, in Germany, historically pacifist in some ways, inclined to have better relations with Russia, skeptical of the United States. And Schultz is of the transatlanticist wing, but there are elements within his party that he needs to sort of bring along. So if he's out there with sort of a, a you know the, the knife in his teeth and he's saying tanks, 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 it creates sort of an internal political problem for him within his party. So I think in some ways he needs to be seen oftentimes as being dragged along. And here was a case where he was being dragged along. It led to real division within his coalition, so not just with his party, but the Green Party and the uh, FDP, which are kind of the libertarian party that he's in coalition with, got really mad at him over tanks. So all of this then provides ammo to him to go back to his base and say, I'm sorry, we really have to do this. But look, I've delivered the Americans as well. Now, I think the major question is, um, will these tanks have any impact on the battlefield? Will they be effective? What are the timelines? And I think that the story is a bit mixed. Um, to me, the major thing is that we've just crossed that threshold of providing tanks, which is important. And I think the whole debate about whether tanks are escalatory uh, was kind of absurd. The moment you're providing long-range pre precision-guided artillery, which is killing Russian general officers, you know, 50 miles behind uh, enemy lines, you've you know blown the roof off of escalation. However, there's a political dimension to escalation, which is that if a if a if a political leader, if the president or the chancellor has said providing tanks is escalatory, it becomes escalatory, even if it's has no real uh, connection to the battlefield. So providing tanks is important symbolically at the very least, and now can enable us to provide the right tanks, hopefully. Uh, the question is, we're providing a lot of old tanks. Will these have to be fixed? A lot are, uh, are different variants. Um, so there's real questions about how Ukraine will be able to absorb them. And then when it comes to the United States, these are t we're providing Abrams tanks. And the big reason we didn't want to provide Abrams tanks is because they're really complex machines that guzzle a ton of fuel. They basically operate something akin to like a jet engine, so they're much more difficult to maintain. Tanks break down all the time. And then if they break down, you need to have this huge logistical support system. And so now Ukraine is going to have to do that for two different sets of tanks, both Leopards and uh, Abrams. So I'm not sure we got to the like ideal scenario in terms of you know, I, I think the ideal scenario from the American perspective was, hey, Europe, you provide all the tanks and we'll do other stuff. And in this case, we are now also providing tanks. 
that also won't arrive for like a year because they have to be built because of how the funding streams work, which is some ways complicated. We should have been just doing this a long time ago. This should have been a decision back in the summer, and then we they would have had these tanks ready to go. So I think we've sort of been tripping over ourselves uh, in 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 this decision. And when you're talking about the Abrams Max, you're not exaggerating. I think they get three miles per gallon of jet fuel to, to run, and they need all these logistical lines. And I think there are a few countries in the queue for manufacturing of new Abrams that, that you were mentioning as well. Um, so, so it is a very complex issue. You hit on escalation, though, and I'd love to dig into that because every time it feels like Ukraine has asked for an up level of weapons for a year now, we have heard concerns about escalation. So you just said that the roof was blown off when the tanks had been delivered. Are there any consequences to the roof of escalation being blown off in the real world? Well, look, escalation can be a slippery slope. And the whole thing is that it doesn't look like there's any consequences. But the you know, when you know that escalation has occurred, it's, you know, when that missile is 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 bearing down on Washington, D.C., which could happen within 30 minutes. So there is this sort of, they, Russia does have the largest nuclear arson, arsenal in the world. So there is that kind of lingering concern, which I don't think it's entirely ridiculous. It's not ridiculous to have an eye on that. And I think that's why, you know, one of the red lines for the Biden administration is that we're not going to put U.S. forces on the ground. We're not going to make this a NATO-Russia fight because then suddenly it could spiral out of control. So that's to say, I think, yes, we should be concerned about broader, you know, thermonuclear war. That would be really bad. Uh, But I think in this case, we can sort of trip over ourselves a little bit because we have actually a lot of experience. Uh engaging in proxy wars with the Russians, formerly the Soviets. Um, it's not to say that these were you know, good times, but we found ways to support allies and partners to you know, cause uh, mass havoc against the Soviet uh, forces, whether it was the Mujahideen in Afghanistan or other sort of small proxy wars throughout the world. And the same was true on the Soviet side in supporting uh, North Vietnam, supporting North Korea against the United States. And we found ways simply that to know where the red lines were in terms of escalation. And therefore, I think the Biden administration has put out some clear red lines of we're not going to support, we're not going to allow Ukraine to target Russian soil, uh, i.e., you know, ru- the way Ukraine is hitting Russian soil with these kind of old Soviet-era drones. They're not using the things that we're providing, because if they did, it would really endanger our cooperation. Uh, and I think when the Ukrainians um, allegedly were behind the assassination of Daria Dugan, you know, the, her car exploded. Uh, it was interesting that that came out in the New York Times, and it seemed like the sourcing was from the United States, i.e. we wanted to indicate to the Russians, like, we didn't have anything to do with this. This was all the Ukrainians' work. So I think we are finding ways of of signaling to the Russians where our limits are. And so that said, I think the delineations of providing, you know, if you're providing long-range artillery versus tanks, you're ultimately providing systems that are, are killing Russian forces. Uh, we've already crossed that threshold, and we're, I think, in an okay, comfortable space where we still need to have lines of communication open. Uh, the one maybe just side vignette on this is that when I was in the State Department, we had dealt with this question a lot in 2014 and 2015 about whether to provide Ukraine with lethal assistance. And uh, to my chagrin, I was advocate for it. But in the, 
The White House ultimately decided not to when we were talking about providing these Javelin anti-tank weapons. The argument, though, of the other side was, well, if we start providing lethal assistance that kills Russians, that would be escalatory. That could prompt the Russians to say, you know what? If if the U.S. is going to provide weapons, we got to go in right now and just nip this in the bud. And there are Russian tanks at the border, so that could trigger something. And that's not an illogical argument. I think you know there's some basis for it, but there was also counterpoints. So these are complex debates, but I think we've sort of crossed that in what we're doing in Ukraine. Max, you talked about the red lines, and if we observe those red lines and we don't cross those red lines, we can avoid a missile launching at Washington D.C. You also mentioned how a potential consequence of some smaller level of escalation, providing Javelin anti-tank equipment, might cause Russia to respond by escalating massively into Ukraine. That's already occurred. So if we're talking about these incremental escalations that still stay inside the red lines, are we thinking about incremental retaliations that are different from the ones that we thought about in 2014, 2015? What are some of those risks? Yeah, well, so I, I guess I would say two things. One, there's another escalatory concern, and that's just stuff happens in war. And we saw that where uh, what was what looked like a Ukrainian surface-to-air missile defense uh, S-300 system tried to take out a Russian, uh, a Russian missile coming at uh, Ukrainian infrastructure. It missed and then went into Polish territory and killed Polish civilians. Well, let's just say that was a Russian missile that went awry. We know that a large percentage of Russian missiles aren't hitting their targets. Let's say one goes and crashes into a NATO territory, and this has sort of already happened with some of their drones. Um, you could have a situation that could be a flashpoint, a trigger that would prompt uh, a NATO NATO Russia conflict. Right? It would prompt you know Poland, let's say, to say we're not going to take this, we're intervening, and then you would have a rush to war. The thing about that, what doesn't totally worry worry me about that scenario is that the United States doesn't want that scenario. Russia doesn't want that scenario. And so escalations and, you know, oftentimes happen triggers when both sides are kind of raring to go. When you think of the World War I example where an assassination in in, uh, Sarajevo triggers World War I, where everyone was sort of gearing up for a fight. And so it was the trigger that then just let it, uh, uh, that lit the fuse. In this case, I think er- no one really wants that. So um, I think I think that's one scenario that I'm I'm somewhat hopeful doesn't happen. There is also the potential threat of Russia using tactical nuclear weapons on its own soil, and I think that that's one where we have to pay attention to. But this isn't you know tactical nuclear weapons are just small nuclear weapons. And we, you know, we were going to use them if the Soviet in a fight with the Soviets, where they were going to, you know, it was East Germany. They had East Germany. We had West Germany. They were going to come through something called the Fulda Gap. There's going to be this huge tank army, and the way to stop it was a, a nuclear weapon that was going to take take out all their tanks. The forces just aren't as large as that, and it it would come with huge costs, both you know, to to potentially Crimea, to which Russia considered its own soil into Russia diplomatically. So I think we're okay on that uh, front as well. One thing that's been getting a little bit of play lately in both media reports from unnamed U.S. defense officials and also the restrainer class is the intelligence coordination between the United States and Ukraine. So you mentioned long-range precision artillery, you mentioned drones, and there are reports that 
the U.S. is helping to guide some of those strikes if they're with our, you know, weapon systems, because that's the whole package that you get. And from my perspective, let's do it as long as, you know, it's not going to create World War III. Is that similar to U.S. boots on the ground? Or do our European partners who are concerned about escalation and maybe even the Russians view this as one step removed? How can we put these two things together where the U.S. is actively helping to kill Russians? Great question. And I think that this hits at um, something that, well, we've kind of established with with the Russians that this is something that we're going to be doing in this war. Uh, It's also something that Russians have done in the past, whether it's the Russians or the Soviets, where sharing information, is that worse than sharing the the weapons? And I I would think not. And I also think that that the Russians sort of had to assume that uh, we're going to provide certain uh, certain intelligence that we're helping the Ukrainians in that way. I just sort of see that as sort of a natural extension of us providing uh, weapon systems. And, you know, the Russians kind of had opportunities to really signal displeasure with the West or actions that they were going to take. Uh, and they did somewhat, but that didn't deter us. Um, you know, they... The, Putin, to be clear, you know, it wasn't sanctions that cut off gas to uh, to Europe. It was Putin who did it. Uh, he's the one who turned off the taps. And then, you know, there's this explosion that is somewhat explained, but, you know, a lot of fingers point to Russia. But, you know, he has tried to use certain levers against the West as well. It's just that that hasn't worked in a coercive way. And then I, I didn't really mention this, uh, but back to John's point, and this gets to some of the potential for Russia to respond in a hybrid way. Which is what we are, you know, sort of expected. Which is what happened after 2014, where Russia intervened in the U.S. election, the French election, and used a lot of hybrid means of cyber attacks and other stuff like that. I think one of the things that we've seen is the West is pretty resilient. I think our our you know, political interference is something everyone pays attention to now. That just makes it harder. Uh, even if Elon Musk isn't that concerned about you know his platform being used in that such a way, we've all become much more uh, critical consumers of, of social media content than we were in 2016. And then when you think about the cyber domain, you know, we, we, we experienced a lot of Russian cyber attacks, you know, throughout the last five years. Uh, they shut down uh, a Russian, Russian linked cyber hackers, shut down the colonial pipeline and, and caused gas lines in the United States. Uh, but we haven't really seen that. And I think we've, I think our defenses have been up. There's a lot of counterintelligence activity happening throughout uh, Europe, where you see Russians getting arrested, uh, people being uh, rooted out as spies in the German intelligence agency, for instance. So I think there's a lot of just, you know, things are happening in the shadows to combat uh, the steps that Russia might use to hit back at us. So that decreases some of Russia's leverage to say, no, don't do that. And maybe just one final point of sort of going on, but Russia tried to use the nuclear threat, right? They were waving around their big nuclear arsenal back in the fall, and it didn't deter Ukraine. Ukrainians said, well, we're here, and we're just going to fight. If you're going to nuke us, well, you're a jerk. Uh, and so we're just going to keep going. And But what eventually happened is the Chinese and, and Indians, it looks like, put pressure on Moscow to cut it out, that they didn't want the potential for the normalization of nuclear use. Uh, and we've seen Russia stop doing that. So it didn't work as a deterrent. And, and so they don't have much left. Um, but, you know, we also don't know what they're playing. 
UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said that nothing is off the table when it comes to helping Ukraine in its fight with Russia. The statement by Sunak comes after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky urged Britain and other countries to give Ukraine wings of freedom. When it comes to fighter combat aircraft, of course they are part of the conversation. Indeed, we've been discussing that today and have been previously, and that's why we've announced today that we will be training Ukrainian Air Force on NATO standard platforms, because the first step in being able to provide advanced aircraft is to have soldiers or aviators that are capable of using them. That is a process that takes some time. We've started that process today. That's because we're keen to support the president and his country in delivering a victory. And nothing is off the table. And our leadership on this issue is something that we all collectively should be very proud of. And I know that the president is grateful for. Max, those of us who've been trying to pay attention to some of these issues have noticed that often things unfold in kind of a recognizable or familiar pattern. Uh, we see that Zelensky and the Ukrainians uh, focus on a single item that they would like to be provided. They push very hard on that particular item, and the Western countries drag their feet, but eventually the pressure campaign works and they relent, and then it's on to the next item. And so uh, we went through this just with these tanks and all the news that we were just discussing. And perhaps next it's going to be planes. Uh, we saw the photo of Zelensky and Rishi Sunak wearing the fighter pilot helmets. Uh, there was some stuff in the news that the UK might help train Ukrainian pilots. It seems like they're ready for the next uh, big push for provision. I'm wondering, Max, do you think that this is a perpetual pattern? Or do you think that it will end at some point and the Western countries will finally hit the limit or the Ukrainians will finally be satisfied with all that they've had? No, I think it's going to be a perpetual pattern. And and I think the Ukrainians are right to push and right to ask. And I think fighter jets is the sort of next logical uh, extension. And I think one of the things that we should look back on the whole tank uh, affair and say, why don't we just get out ahead of this? Um, you know, right now it's, it, I don't really view providing fighter jets as escalatory. Fighter jets in some ways are offensive weapons, but in the way the Ukrainians are going to be using them is many ways defensive. It will be that if Russian forces penetrate some of their uh, lines, that then you would have fighter jets come in. It provides another ray of air defense. Uh, and one of the things that is uh, happening, one of the, the surprises of this war is actually the lack of, of uh, air force involvement. Uh, not just on the Ukrainian side, but really on the Russian side. And that's because there's so much uh, air and missile defense that it's not a permissive environment for fighter aircraft to be operating, whether you're Russian or Ukrainian. And so the provision of fighter jets, I think, is both a longer term uh, a solution. Like Ukraine will need to have fighter jets. If the war ends tomorrow, Ukraine will need fighter jets because it will need to deter Russia from ever thinking about doing this again. Um and uh, if the war doesn't end tomorrow, it will want to have fighter jets, both as that kind of line of defense, and if it is making offensive operations and it can hit some of Russia's air defense, then suddenly it could really uh, enable Ukrainian forces to go on the offensive. So I think this is something we should just get ahead of, start providing. Now, we are going to start having an issue of cost. You know, fighter jets are really expensive. They are the they're the thing. They're the Lamborghini of military uh, systems. They're the things that are really pricey. Now we would be providing them old ones, uh, but uh, but you know they're still expensive and they require a lot of maintenance. And again, I think this is a case where you don't want to be providing 
you know, eight different types of fighter jets. You want, you know, one, maybe two, because you they require a lot of maintenance as well and a lot of expertise on how to maintain them and how to get them back in the air. And so it's really hard if you have to maintain a plethora of, of systems. As we approach baseball season, it's the coveted three or number four hitter in the lineup, so to speak. Very expensive and hard to maintain. Yes, definitely. I think that's a great analogy. <laughs> so from the U.S. perspective, we've seen reports in the New York Times again, the paper of record, about potentially the DOD softening on their stance of supporting Ukraine to retake Crimea. I was wondering, from your perspective, maybe the leaders in Europe, the UKs, the Germans, the French, so on and so forth, what are their stances, generally speaking, towards Crimea? I think Crimea, in some ways, in some ways, it's sort of a theoretical conversation right now, right? There is an entire, there's like a big portion of the Russian army between Ukraine and Crimea. And and hopefully Ukraine gets to the point where that Russian army isn't between it and Crimea. And we can really, you know, then that conversation stops being theoretical and starts being real. I, I do think that there is an element here where you have to think about it in a number of ways. One, does Ukraine really want to take Crimea? Of course, they're going to publicly say yes. Of course, that was Ukrainian territory pre-2014. But this is also territory that Russia has occupied for the last eight years. Uh, for Ukraine to occupy it, you know that could uh, have some costs. I think the real thing that we need to that that Ukraine needs to do is put Crimea under threat. Uh, if you look at Russian public opinion polls, Russians view Crimea as theirs because that was sort of vastly popular when Crimea was quote unquote returned to Russia after 2014. Uh, so putting Crimea under threat, I think, puts Putin's regime potentially uh, at threat. And I think if the Ukrainians are in a position to potentially take Crimea, well, then, it, then you know, I'm, then all sorts of things come on the table. Where will would Russia just uh, want to have negotiations and agree to demilitarize Crimea? Uh, will they potentially threaten the use of tactical nuclear weapons to? you know, protect Crimea from a Ukrainian onslaught. Uh, I, I think there's a, a lot of issues at bay, but I think it's right for the Ukrainians to, to maintain the goal of saying we are going to take back all our territory from since uh, the 1990s onward. Uh, and then, you know, but that's where you could also see the potential for some sort of negotiation uh, because it, you know, it is costing Ukraine uh, lots of lives whenever they go on the offensive and they have to balance that. But to be clear, I think we're a long way away from that. And it's ultimately, you know, we can sort of speculate about what Ukraine should and should not do. But ultimately, this is going to be up to Ukrainians. It's going to be up to uh, the to Zelensky and the government in Kiev. And while we have a lot of influence in the US and Europe, particularly here in Washington, because we're giving a lot of assistance, you know, it, it's also a two-way street. Zelensky, you know, as you can see, when he goes to Europe and everyone wants to have their picture taken with him, He's got a lot of political influence uh, in Europe and around the world. And if he's being and if, you know, Biden or anyone else is seen as badgering him to capitulate in in uh, with the Russians, uh, that can reverberate negatively politically back here in the U.S. And, and, and in Europe. So the Ukrainians will drive this this question, I think, will raise concerns, be like, are you sure? And if they are, then I think that they'll they'll have the U.S. and, and Western backing. Pet 
Victor Pavel will be the Czech Republic's new president after confidently defeating his opponent, former Prime Minister Andrej Babiš, in a runoff vote which ended Saturday afternoon. On stage, the 61-year-old retired general thanked the people who cast ballots in this election and said that truth and humility won. The new president will take his oath on March 9th after his predecessor Milo Zeman held office for 10 years and was considered by many to be a Euroskeptic politician. With the election of Petro Pavel, the Czech Republic will once again have a clearly pro-Western president. The former general supports the introduction of the euro, military aid to Ukraine, and, as he said during the campaign, he's not opposed to the legalization of same-sex marriage. Adam Magyar, Euronews, Prague, Czech Republic. So, Max, I want to pivot slightly here, and for about a decade now, we've heard in in the US concerns about authoritarian creep in certain countries in Europe. Simply put, how has this war impacted those concerns? Because we look at the Czech Republic, we look at Moldova, and their leaders are much more pro-Western than the potential alternatives. Has the war in Ukraine kind of beaten back that authoritarian creep that everybody was concerned about? Or is this something we need to be ever vigilant on? Great question, and I think my answer would would, would be that there. What well, we the thing we haven't seen is a new sort of populist uh, uh, anti democratic resurgence. You could make the argument, and I think we were seeing a lot of that in in a lot of the press writing uh, back in the fall when you had uh, the collapse of the Draghi government in Italy. You had the earlier in the year the French election with Macron versus Le Pen, and Le Pen did quite well. Uh, but Macron obviously won. And then the new uh, government of Italy is uh, led by Maloney from a, a, a formerly uh, a party with fascist roots and very sort of anti-EU in its rhetoric. Then you had an election in Sweden where the second largest party was the Swedish Democrats, which have neo-Nazi roots. Um, they didn't form the government co- in the government coalition, but they're supporting the government, which puts it in power. And so you could sort of draw a trend line here and say, oh, this looks really bad. I actually think each of these cases are are kind of both unique or actually tell a different story. In the French case, yeah, Le Pen did well. She got around 42% of the vote, if I remember correctly. But Macron won 58-42. In America, we call that a blowout uh, in an election. And Macron wasn't like the insurgent candidate like he was uh, in you know five years before or six years before. He was, um, or it was five years before. Uh, he was, uh, you know, the establishment guy. In some ways, the rhetoric looked very much like he was kind of like a Hillary Clinton type candidate. Establishment, everyone knew. There was people were kind of upset. Uh, and Le Pen normalized. Like she was far right in 2017, and she ran as kind of a, you know, more like a center right or or right wing candidate, not a far right candidate. The same is true in Italy with Maloney. She really moved to the center. She toned down all the anti-EU rhetoric. Uh, and then the Swedish Democrats, yes, they have neo-Nazi roots. That's really bad. Uh, but they also spent the last decade normalizing themselves. And then you had an election that was fought on their turf, on immigration issues, on crime in Sweden. Uh, and, you know, still, the their, while they formed a right-wing, uh, a, a right-to-center-right block that got just more votes than the than the left and center left, they weren't in the government because they're they're not respectable enough. So, you know, in each of these cases, what you see is 
actually the right moving to the center. It's sort of different here in the United States where the right hasn't made that kind of movement to the center and you're still seeing an attachment to kind of very far right policies uh, amongst many Republicans. And then we, you know, frankly, just had a Czech election where the populist sort of pro-Russian figure did not uh, win uh, and lost actually quite handily to a former Czech military officer who's you know was part of NATO uh, for a while. So you've you've actually I think seen Europe sort of be very stable. It's just they have politics and you know some governments are standing, some governments are you know doing well and others are you know collapse and it's sort of the the normal running of politics and we're not seeing the kind of populist explosion that we saw really post 2015. Max, I take your point completely about how Macron was able to be reelected. But when we look at the drift, Max, when we look at the drift, um, you mentioned Marine Le Pen got 42% of the vote. When her father made it to the second round in 2002, he got 18% of the vote, losing to Jacques Chirac of the center right, 82% for Chirac. So from 82% to 52% is a pretty significant decline. And um, you know, if we had a two-round system like that in the United States where there are no third parties in the final round, perhaps that 42 to 58 might have looked like our 2016 election. And the other thing is that the far-right parties have much more support among the youth in Europe than they do in the United States. And that suggests that there's few, you know, future for growth in government. The AfD, I think, are in a new poll are 17, 18% for the first time in a few years. Yeah. No, well, let me put it this way. I didn't want, I didn't, at least I hope I didn't imply. There's no, is there, it's not that there's no reason for concern. I do think that like Marie Le Pen is sort of a much more attractive figure than her father, who was sort of like this old crotchety uh, old man. And, uh, and is a much more like professionalized politician. And w- the other thing you've just seen is the collapse in Europe of the traditional parties, the traditional party structure where there'd be kind of a center left party, usually social Democrats and the center right party, usually sort of Christian right party uh, has has kind of collapsed. And that's what we saw in France, where the collapse of the center-right party is just utterly obliterated. And same actually on the left, the collapse of the socialists. And Macron, and you know, this is what makes it kind of bizarre, is that Macron in some ways is the center-right and the center-left candidate uh, at the same time. Uh, and and so the, the, the fragmentation of European politics makes it in some ways each country very unpredictable and in people willing to sort of dabble in and pursue other parties, it can can lead to suddenly, you know, a party like the Swedish Democrats sort of coming out of nowhere. So it, it's not saying that everything is copacetic, but I, I think there's some countervailing trends in uh, at least in reaction to the war. Yeah, I mean, look, Jean Marie Le Pen, he was like a real paytanist, like a real Vichy guy, and uh, yeah. like you said, Max, I mean. Because Macron collapsed the entire political landscape and is just holding it, you kind of wonder what's going to happen after he's gone. But I want to ask you a question about now and today, the role that France and Germany are playing in Europe. I have a comment that I found from a Portuguese former Portuguese minister who's very uh, active on Twitter. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. Very bellicose and often prone to exaggeration. But I I thought this quote was was a a funny one. Um, He says, With Zelensky in London and Brussels and Biden about to visit Warsaw, it's a new Europe where Paris and Berlin play almost no role. Given that this gentleman is prone to exaggeration, I'm still wondering if you think there's a kernel of truth in this, Max. Uh, 
are, are France and Germany playing the proper leadership role? I mean, we, we talked about Germany before. We were talking about France just now. It, it seems that France don't have the same level of pressure from the American media that Germany do to step up on Ukraine. I mean, how are they leading the continent the way that they're kind of expect to in the post-1990 world? Well, I think the frustration is that they're they're not leading the continent as they as they should. Um, uh, I think the French want to, but the French, you know, Macron needs Schultz, like he needs the Germans. And there's a lot of talk, and I, I you know, the, the quote that you mentioned of, you know, basically as power shifted eastward in Europe, because look, the Eastern Europeans are right. Uh, you know, they were right about Russia. Their, you know, their their moral clarity when it comes to Ukraine, and that's that's very true, but. And there's a, I think a pretty big but, and I, there's a number of buts. I would say one is that there's just not that many of them. So if you know, if Eastern Europe of what I think folks are thinking of really of Poland and the Baltic states, uh, you know that's like 45, 50 million people. You know, Germany is eighty million people. France what, sixty to seventy. And the German economy is so massive uh, in scope uh, in in Europe. That economically, the population size, uh, it is really France and Germany still very much, I think, are, you know, if they move in tandem in a direction, it has this gravitational pull of countries like Spain, countries like uh, Denmark, or that move, and then that puts pressure uh, on everyone else. The other thing I would say, the other but here, is that... it's unclear to me what the Eastern Europeans, what their vision for Europe actually is, uh, and that they don't quite have uh, a direction that they are pushing in. They're clearly very outspoken about Ukraine. But this is, I think, one of the examples of, you know, Zelensky was in, in Brussels. Uh, There's lots of talk of, of uh, Ukraine's potential EU membership. The thing that the Eastern Europeans all forget is that before the Eastern Europeans became members, so in, two, in 2004, there was the Big Bang enlargement where you know, all the Warsaw Pact countries were, were brought into the European Union. But the, like the decade before that, there was constant back and forth over treaties within the EU. Of, basically, it was co- a fight over constitutional reform. If you're going to let in new countries, you have to reform the system. It's like, it's like doing filibuster reform in the Senate. You know, suddenly you you've you've changed some of the voting orders, some of the voting proportions. Uh, there's just technical things to work out, and then it's also an opportunity to try to get the to fix the way the EU runs or improve the way the EU runs before you add a new member, and then suddenly it becomes more complicated. And the Eastern Europeans are opposed to any negotiations over treaty over a new treaty, but you're not going to have Ukraine enter unless there's a new treaty. And this is where France uh, has no problem saying no. Uh, they have no problem being the bad guy. And I think one of the reasons uh, to get to one of the points you made about why we give Germany so much more stick than we give the French is that if we yell at the French, it doesn't move them. But if we yell at the Germans, well, they've demonstrated that they can sort of be cowed into being being uh, moved along and, and changed in their position. Well, the French tend to just, you know, it kind of enjoy the tussle. Yeah, I think that if we tell the Gaullists what to do, it will cause them to do the opposite. So maybe we should start using some of that <laughs> reverse psychology. Max, talking about Ukraine's prospect of becoming an EU member. I mean, I think that we might have even spoken about this last time you were on, but when you actually listen to the Ukrainians, you can see clearly that all of this NATO stuff that the Russian orders bring up is very pretextual because the EU is really what's driving 
the ambitions of the Ukrainian people and their political leadership. While we're talking about this bid, we want to set expectations that are pragmatic. Uh, you've talked about how treaty reform is going to be required for Ukraine to become part of the EU. We've seen how, just like you kind of referenced there, France have held up the accession of other countries that were pretty far along the way, countries like Albania, North Macedonia, who even changed the name of their country to try to get on this path. Practically speaking, how far away are Ukraine really from this? Could we set any expectation of a timeline? How many decades? And is it maybe better for Ukraine to think about a different model where they have single market access, customs union, a hybrid model like so many other states have, rather than thinking about getting a real seat at the table and becoming EU number 28? Great question. And one of the things that was uh, Zelensky was really pushing for uh, when he was uh, in Brussels with the European Council was in the with the European Commission uh, was to push for uh, uh, the EU to open up ascension talks. So they've granted Ukraine candidate status, and then the next step is that well, you're actually on the path to joining, and and that can be endless. You know that has sort of uh, been the case with a number of Western Balkan countries. The thing about EU enlargement is that there are rules, but there are also no rules. Uh, so, uh, and that may sound contradictory, but it's it's really not. I mean, the, the EU, I mean, this is a very complicated process. It's a little bit like, think about it this way, is if Mexico wanted to join the United States and we said, okay, you're going to join as the 51st state, not, not where I live, DC, we would be very upset, but Mexico, you're going to join. Well, think about how hard that would be in Mexico. Right, you would have to change all your laws, your legal systems. You have to, you know, adapt to the constitution. Now, it's not; it's it's more so than you know. We're much more of a federal union than the EU, but the EU has you know uh, has a Supreme Court, the European Court of Justice. They have all these laws. They have all these rules, uh, and so implementing all of that before you become a member is very challenging. It's very difficult. That's why it can take a long time. But you know, a war post wartime environment. Or a wartime environment where you know things just happen, you know, because it's much easier to move bureaucratically in Ukraine than it used to be. They're rooting out corruption. All like they can move at warp speed. I think on a lot of this, but the larger issue is that what is Ukraine? What are the borders of Ukraine? Right. You know, one one of the reasons why it's sort of ridiculous to say that NATO caused this war, that Russia was concerned about Ukraine becoming a part of NATO or part of the EU, is that. Russia occupied parts of Ukraine before the war, which meant that if you and they were Ukraine and Russia were fighting for the last eight years or last nine years. So what that means is that if Ukraine were to join the EU or join NATO, it's actually, you know, the EU would be uh, bringing in a member that's at war with Russia. Ergo, it's at war with Russia. So that becomes, I think, a really big challenge. But basically, once there's it, let's just assume the Ukraine can get to borders that it agrees with and the war comes to a halt, then I think the EU can move. It can move fairly quickly. Ukraine can move fairly quickly. This doesn't have to take decades. It's as long as it's on the pathway and it's it's going to happen and we know it's going to happen, then the reforms continue to happen. It's the moment that it's like, you know what, this isn't going to happen. Why am I passing this really hard law that is really unpopular that no one wants to, and that's when you start to see the momentum collapse, and that's what happens in the Western Balkans. But that has to simultaneously go hand in hand with the EU needs to be reforming itself because that sends a signal to the Ukrainians it's going to happen. So it's this process working back and forth between Brussels, national capitals, and Ukraine 
And it's not just about the Ukrainians. And I think it's really fundamentally actually about Poland and about the Baltic states. They're going to have to give up a lot. They're going to have to reform. They don't, there's a lot of compromises they're going to have to make. And they all signed a letter early on in this war saying that they were against treaty reform, which is a ba- basically saying we're not going to let, you know, we're basically against Ukraine joining. So I, I think this is critical for Ukraine's reconstruction, for Ukraine's future. Uh, and I think that that's, we need to get serious about all of it and have a much broader view of it. Uh, well, we have seen how um, uh, Russia is uh, behaving uh, when they are having a full-scale invasion of a friendly, democratic, non-aligned uh, country. And the way that they are conducting the war, it's uh, war crimes is, uh, on civilians, it's a civilian infrastructure, it's bombing of schools and hospitals and theaters. Um, and uh, this has made us take the decision that we will not be secure uh, without uh, applying for membership in NATO. But do you believe that there will now be a remilitarization of the Baltic? Do you think that actually there'll be a more nuclear Baltic? Are you concerned about that kind of escalation? Uh, we hope that uh, there, will, there will not be uh, an escalation, but during the period of transition before Sweden and Finland get the full membership, there will be a heightening uh, of tension in, area, in our area, and we also foresee more military uh, troops close to our borders and so on and so forth. Sure. M- Minister, um Sweden's been working with NATO for a very, very long time anyway. We know that as well. What practically will be different with this membership of NATO, uh, apart from the risks associated with Article 5? Mainly the more deeply defence planning. Uh, That is one of the key issues. So switching to NATO and another couple countries trying to join multilateral organization of sorts. Right now, Turkey is holding up Sweden. Do you think that this is because of the election that is upcoming and that after the election, Sweden will get the green stamp? Or help us understand what's going on here between Turkey and the prism that they're viewing Sweden and NATO. So I think number one, Turkey is a very difficult partner and 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 have been and has been under Erdogan. Uh, really for the last decade extensively. And I think part of this is he sees a potential to basically extort uh, concessions. I do think there is a bit of annoyance uh, within Turkey at Sweden. Turkey has, or Sweden has been, I think, rightly critical of Turkey's human rights record, supportive of the Kurds, uh, has opposed, you know, arms sales. And Sweden has changed a lot to try to accommodate Turkey. But now Turkey, you know, will ask for certain things that are just not possible. Like, extraditing people who didn't really do anything wrong or or maybe they did but you're not going to extradite them into a situation where it's clearly going to be a, a, a sham trial so they have sweden has its own laws rules and procedures so and i think this is an effort by turkey to sort of uh by trying to divide sweden and finland to sort of shed blame within the alliance but as you mentioned turkey is about to have an election uh in may or potentially in may i mean we'll see this earthquake uh, and the emergency powers that Erdogan has proclaimed may get in the way of that. Uh, but the polling doesn't look great for Erdogan. The opposition is very confident. I think it's pretty clear the election won't be fair, but the expectation, at least among the opposition, is that it will be free. And if it's not free or fair, I think you could see Turkey becoming this real flashpoint. I basically think that where every, every, where it lies now is that everyone's just going to wait and see what happens with the election. And that 
it, you know, you don't want to get in a big fight with Erdogan right now because that could play into his hands from a nationalistic standpoint. It's also unlikely he's going to climb down. Uh, Sweden has sort of declared like we've sort of done everything we can do. So I think we're just kind of in a holding pattern to see where the Turkish elections go. And I think I think everyone's kind of hoping for, you know, uh, Erdogan to be voted out, uh, voted out of office for him to leave peacefully uh, and for Turkey to have a new, more pro-European government that will likely ratify Sweden and Finland. Max, you mentioned these devastating earthquakes that have occurred in the Hatay region of Turkey, uh, something that is presumably going to swallow a lot of the domestic attention for the next foreseeable period of time. We're also starting to see aid initiatives from countries in the Middle East and the Caucasus, like Israel, Azerbaijan, but also from NATO allies of Turkey, France, the United States, who are sending aircraft carrier. Do you expect that the earthquake is going to change either one, the way that Turkey projects power, given that it's going to take a lot of its focus away, and number two, or B, uh, the way that Turkey interacts with its allies, who Turkey have had such a difficult relationship with until this period of you know support and solidarity on the emergency. Great question. The answer is, I don't know, but this natural disasters like this can certainly bring publics together and, and change the mood. You know, for uh, the the tsunami disaster, I think of two thousand four was actually a moment where you know a public opinion of the United States and, and Southeast Asia increased dramatically due to the the response of the United States and our ability to deploy uh, aircraft carriers and provide food and aid in uh, to devastated populations. Uh, I think the one just sort of practical effect that people were somewhat concerned about before the earthquake was that you know uh, there would be kind of a wag the dog style uh scenario where turkey and greece they're both they both actually have elections coming up this spring uh that there's disputed islands and that there'd be some incident or something that would then royal public opinion in turkey in play to erdogan's benefit but you're seeing you know greek uh aid workers that are on the ground helping rescue people and i think that's i think that scenario to me now has has, has really shrunk so my hope is that this does provide an opportunity to kind of rebuild relations with a, a number of countries that were broken. It creates an opportunity to build uh, strong ties. We actually saw that between Turkey and Russia. You know, they had a, uh, the Turks shot down a Russian fighter jet over Syria, and then the assassination of uh, of the Russian ambassador in Turkey. Turkey, you know, apologized. That helped create a thaw. Tragic events can can do that, and I think there's hopefully some good comes out of this uh, out of this tragedy that it leads to uh, more harmonious relations. I'd say the, the one other thing is that, you know, part of what brought AKP and Erdogan to power was a similar earthquake 25 years ago or so. And, you know, the construction standards of a lot of these buildings, a lot of them look fairly new. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of blowback of how, do, how are new buildings constructed on a fault line that didn't have the right standards, was corruption at play. It's hard to speculate on how natural disasters like this can play politically. It could work to you know the, the government's in power's advantage. We've seen that a number of times with hurricanes and other things here in the United States. But it can also redound where it actually kind of exposes some of the, 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 the underbelly of, of a country and of its of a governing system. I've sort of circled the Turkish election as a potential geopolitical flashpoint, because if the opposition thinks elections are going to be free, uh, going, to, going to be free at the very least. And if there is, uh, if they're clearly, if there's some fraud, if they're fraudulent, 
and Erdogan, you know, is going to uh, uh, try to claim victory. I think this this I think there'll be huge protests around Turkey, uh, and that will be. And then what will the military do? How will Erdogan respond? Is a big sort of you know open question for twenty twenty three. I mean, the Turkish elections just huge input has impacts on Syria. Uh, the wider uh, Mediterranean, obviously relations with Russia and Ukraine um, and NATO. So yeah, it's a really big, important country. And I think you said something really prescient there about how natural disasters play out, at least here in the US, from my experience with Puerto Rico, there's usually a galvanizing effect. And then once corruption is brought in to the human suffering and the potential that the government could have done something different that prevents it, Usually the leaders end up losing their jobs. So it'll be interesting to see if that same narrative and process plays out. If you're one of our listeners and you're just reading the notes, the headlines on Biden and the EU and Europe, you're hearing all of these great things. You're hearing the support we're giving to Ukraine. But maybe under the surface for some people would be stuff like the Inflation Reduction Act. When Macron came over to the United States, he did a 60-minute interview and he was hemming and hawing about that. When Joe Manchin went over to Davos, he was a celebrity. He was meeting with heads of state, a, a U.S. senator over the Inflation Reduction Act. And it comes down to some folks think it's a, it's a bit protectionist around the green technologies that we want to have produced here in the United States. From your understanding of how this is being perceived and received in Europe, is there the possibility that the economic protectionism of the United States in this instance and other instances could do some real harm and undermine the progress we've made on our alliances with the EU? Well, yes and no. And I, this is a one area where I think the Europeans uh, completely hyperventilated and, and kind of overreacted. Let's be clear, the U.S., I think, just made a mistake, and I think this Joe Manchin admitted this at Davos, where in the Inflation Reduction Act, right, the whole point is we don't want to create all these subsidies for you, know, you to buy electric vehicles, to rip out your gas boiler, to replace it with heat pumps, and then for all that money to just go to Chinese companies and just be everything made in China. So that was the goal. And then what they did is they created this loophole that said, okay, well, countries... Well, that content has to be made in the U.S. or with countries that we have a free trade agreement with. But we don't have a free trade agreement with the European Union. It's just like we don't. And it it, it seems like we should. And there was an effort to. But you know, trade tariffs are already so low that like the whole effort to do a free trade agreement during the Obama administration was always second fiddle to Asia. It just didn't matter as much. And and Joe Manchin admitted that, like, well, that was just an oversight in, in the law. But then if you're a European co and company, you're suddenly like, oh, no, we have to like move all our factories to the United States. And, you know, this discriminates against us. You know, we're supposed to be allies. Like, what the heck? Uh, and it also hit Europe sort of the light discovered this in the fall of last year. And what happened in the fall of last year? They're gearing up for winter. Energy prices are skyrocketing. They're, you know, worried about the deindustrialization of Europe. So European competitiveness was going down and lots of concern. I think one of the things that Europeans have started to discover more about the law is that like, actually, this is not going to hurt them. You know, it's going to help others more, but European companies are going to really benefit from this. You know, who makes like the best windmills? Well, that's the Danes, you know, they're going to want, they're just going to open new factories in the US, but their corporate headquarters will be in Denmark. So it's going to have a mutually beneficial effect. 
Uh, and I think more broadly, part of what we saw here is that Europe has the ability to regulate. So the European Union can set regulations. It has carbon pricing, it has an emissions trading scheme, and it has its own currency. It has the euro. But what it doesn't have is its own fiscal policy. And fiscal policy is what we have. And there's no reason why the Europeans don't have a fiscal policy. They could reform their treaty, as I mentioned, and give themselves the ability to have a fiscal policy. It's kind of crazy that you create a monetary union and you don't have the fiscal resources. Uh, and so for Europe, the way they get to the net zero is really through regulation. Uh, and then some on the state level, uh, they, they can subsidize, but they don't have the EU budget's actually very small. So suddenly you're seeing this massive amount of money in the United States is spending to do climate change and Europe can't do that. And that has led to, oh, you know, the French are very good at identifying, you know, and the French want to move toward what I'm talking about, a fiscal union. And, you know, French car companies are not affected by this. German car companies are. But the French are the most outraged because they are pushing the EU in this direction. And you know who has their back? John Kerry and Catherine Tai, the you know, U.S. Trade, Sec uh, trade Advisor, are saying, do what we do. Spend more money. Yes, pay people to you know, rip out their gas boilers and put in heat pumps. That's great uh, because it's subsidizing, but you're basically subsidizing people to tackle the climate, which is, I think, important. Max, I want to tie this discussion of industrial policy to kind of the overall theme of our discussion for our last question here, which was mostly focused on defense. And we're talking about the Gaullists. What the Gaullists and others of that school of thought across Europe might allege is that you're, uh, American advocacy for European armament um, is motivated by the commercial interests of the defense industry. This is not only a common claim by the Gaullists, but also by the restrainer camp in American foreign policy, by media outlets that are a little bit more sympathetic to maybe the Russian point of view, and so on. It's a very common complaint that we hear often. And I wanted to hear your response. Great question. What's interesting, in when I was at the State Department, I basically the portfolio I dealt with were arms sales, security assistance abroad. So dealt with like arms sales, not just to Europe, but, but globally. And what I can tell you is that uh, that critique, when it applies to U.S. arms sales globally, is totally off. That we don't sell things all the time. And you hear industry complain all the time about the those guys at the State Department that are blocking sales, that won't allow uh, this technology to go. And, and you know, we you think we sell all these things to the Middle East, but there's so many things we, you know, the Saudis want the fanciest Lamborghinis around. Um, and we oftentimes dial it back because we don't want them to have certain technology. We have to be concerned about Israel security. But then when it comes to Europe, we're just sell, 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 because why not? They're, you know, they're rich, they're democratic, they're allies, like we can trust them with our technology. So sell, sell, sell. So that kind of argument that the restrainers and others make actually has a big, good deal of resonance. I think in Europe, well, or in our policy toward Europe, which is heavily driven by wanting to do arms sales, because you know, unless there's a competing strategic reason not to, you know, folks in the State Department pursue sales. You know, they pursue, they try to advance the interests of U.S. companies. But what we're finding is that actually those sales come with a cost, and the cost is that we have contributed to keeping the European defense market fractured. So anytime, you know, and I did, you know, I was part of this. So I went to Poland in 2015 and we were pushing the Poles to buy Patriot missile system. It's great. You know, kudos to Raytheon. But uh, 
you know, they could have bought the French Sam T system. Very similar, still good, still really good. I think the Americans better, but still really good. And actually, what what's what was in U.S. national interest? Well, you know, right now, if the French were pumping out air defense to Poland, and we are still going to be pumping out, you know, uh, Patriot because we're, you know, we have the U.S. military, we have eight hundred billion dollar defense budget. That's more air defense. That's potentially more air defense that NATO has that that could go to Ukraine. And instead, we've been undercutting the European market. European countries haven't been spending enough. That's totally true. But they can't even rely on the on their own European market. And they can't sell to the Americans because Congress won't allow them. So we've kind of, you know, made it so the European defense companies, European defense industry is like bare. And it's a huge problem. I mean, our defense industry can barely produce what we need. And, and there's major issues there. So to me, I think this is where we need to have uh, a slightly broader and different perspective. Uh, in a in a broader vision for what we want European security to look like. And I think that's very easy for the U.S. to do. It's just start to say, okay, what does the impact of some of our defense sales mean on the broader European security? And maybe just to get to one one final point on the Gaulis, the French have been really at, at big advocates of something called strategic autonomy. They want Europe to be sort of more, uh, to be able to act on its own, to not be so dependent on the United States. And we are split on this in the United States. The people who work in the State Department and the Defense Department who kind of run U.S. policy, the people who do the work, are totally opposed. They want America to remain indispensable to European security. They want everyone to be relying on us, and they want we want to call the shots on European security. But, like, is that what the American people want? That's not really what the White House wants. The White House wants to focus on Asia. They want Europe to just do more and handle more on its own. And you know, is strategic autonomy against our interests? I think not. I think that actually, if Europe was just able to do more, it would just make engaging with Europe all the more important and all the more useful instead of it just being seen like a burden, like something we have to do to make sure the Europeans don't whine. We'd be like, no, the Europeans are doing stuff in, in other parts of the world. We need to really engage with them. So I think there's something we need to sort of figure out ourselves what our vision is for US, uh, for, for Europe going forward. Where do you think President Biden stands in that? I think our, our last two presidents were more strategic autonomy types, but just quickly, where's Biden? Yeah, well, I think Biden is is a transatlanticist, but is you know in, in in an old school type, old school variety, and this is where I think we str- have struggled as a country uh, on Europe. That the EU is like you know it's new, it's it's millennial. <laughs> I mean it's it's 1993, and, and yes, European integration went on before that, but really. Every EU citizen, every citizen of an EU country became an EU citizen, a dual citizen in 1993. And for Biden and for the Washington, it's, it's very difficult to contemplate that Europe is kind of a th- one thing now. I mean, it's yes, all these different countries, but it acts as one and all these things. And actually, the country that most understands this and the leader that I think most understands this is Zelensky. Because he recognized, he understands when you're on the outside of this union, it sucks. The UK is feeling that now. And that really, it means something to be part of it. And they want to be part of this union. They want to, they feel European. And that's the thing now. And we haven't really modernized our policy and approach to, to get up to speed. So, but Biden, you know, Biden is in line with where the U.S. has been because, you know, Biden's been around a long time. 